Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy you're here. I have a wonderful conversation to share with you today that I had with Simon Tucker. Um, Simon came highly recommended for a very long time. I think pretty much since I, I started the podcast, people started whispering in my ear about him. So uh, it was really wonderful to, to finally connect. Um, before I get to it, though, a few announcements. Um, lots of infinite play this month. Next week, July 12th through the 16th, I will be facilitating infinite play as part of uh, the, uh, the week-long movement research camp that Block 1750 is putting on in Boulder, Colorado. So if you're anywhere near there, I would love to see you there. Um, there are going to be a lot of incredible teachers ranging from different disciplines like um, breakdancing and parkour to FRC and animal flow. So it's really an honor to get to, uh, to be a part of that and teach alongside uh, all these different modalities. So would love to see you there. Uh, when that wraps up, I'm hopping on a plane and headed to Seattle. And then on July 18th, which is a Sunday, I'll be facilitating Infinite Play. Um, so if you're anywhere near Seattle, would love to see you there. We had such a great time last time. I'm looking forward to doing it again. Um, also reconnecting with uh, my friends at the Fremont Gymnasium. If you're in the Seattle area, highly recommend checking out what they're up to. Um, some good friends are, uh, are teaching over there. Um, so yeah, definitely check them out. Uh, I think Mercedes, Mercedes Palmeyer, who I had on the podcast, will be uh, teaching a little bit over there as well. Um, after that, I'm hopping on a plane, headed to New York, and then on July 24th and 25th, I'll be facilitating Infinite Play in Brooklyn. Uh, that's Saturday and Sunday. The first day is um, a full day event, starting in the morning, ending in the afternoon. And the second day is uh, just a, a two-hour jam in the morning. And uh, you have the option to uh, register for either or both days. So if you're anywhere in the tri-state area, it would be great to see you there. Um, and then back on a plane, headed to Florida, and back to Miami on July 31st. Um, again, we had such a great time uh, jamming with everybody in Miami. We felt like we needed to return one more time before we leave Florida. So that event is uh, on that Saturday, the 31st. Um, yeah, come out and join us. All of the um, sign-up information for these events is uh, available on my new website, kylefincham.com, that we just made live yesterday or the day before. Um, so yeah, you can check that out. There's a, an infinite play page and it has uh, the full schedule and uh, links to sign up. Um, the website also has uh, all the podcast information and uh, episodes as well as... Um, a blog with uh, my writing, my ideas and wonderings and curiosities. So um, yeah, you can check all that out there. Cool. 
those are my announcements. Uh, as I said, Simon Takur um, was somebody that a lot of people have been recommending to me for a long time. I've said that I should speak to him for various reasons. Either they wanted to hear what he had to say or uh, they just thought that I would enjoy speaking to him, um, which I did. So uh, I'm really happy we, uh, we found a way to make it happen. Um, it took some, uh, you know, creative Zoom logistics because we're uh, 15 hours apart. So um, it was uh, evening time here, morning time there when we spoke. And uh, it was really a privilege. Um, if you're not familiar with Simon, uh, he uh, has a really dense and interesting background that's come from more than 20 years of practice and research across a wide range of fields. Um, from an academic perspective, he studied things like chemistry, biology, physiology, exercise science, molecular genetics, immunology, neuroscience, psychology, anthropology, archeology, span religious studies, ecology, evolutionary biology. Um, from a movement perspective, he studied internal martial arts, yoga, jujitsu. Uh, he also has spent a lot of time studying bushcraft. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I'm, I'm only like uh, skimming the surface, you know. Capoeira, studying natural movement. Yeah, survival skills. The he um yeah. He's put his hands on a lot of things and um has spent a lot of time reflecting on it. So I think uh it was really a privilege to uh get to kind of dive in and and you know hear some of his thoughts and ideas and, and, and bounce some ideas off one another. Um, yeah, I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's not waste any time. Let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Simon Takur. Because I bring up some of the things that you're talking about a lot and, and people sometimes like they've challenged me and said, well, we can't just go back and live in, in tribes. And I, and I say like, oh, well, that's not that's not really necessarily what I'm proposing because I think that like we've, we've, we're clearly beyond that. But what I do believe is that from an evolutionary perspective, we're still bodies and nervous systems that are designed, that are, I shouldn't say designed, that have tinkered only up until that point. And then we've made giant leaps and we're, we're still, we're still nervous systems that are, are, are most ready for 75 person tribes and all those kind of things and relationships with totally. the natural world yeah. that come with that. Yeah. 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 For sure, man. And like, you know, we've got our, our little boy turned one a month ago and like for most of my life, I kind of assumed that I wasn't, wasn't going to have children and part of that was because I never saw 
I never saw a family environment role modeled for me that I thought was like, was okay. All I saw was nuclear families living inside their houses, disconnected from their neighbors, like, you know, parents at work and children and you know, all this stuff. And it's like, you know, respect to everyone who's doing, who's doing what they need to do. But I was just like, I can't, I can't deal with that. But then like um, some years ago, actually when I lived in Japan, I encountered a lot of great, great communities. But then here in Australia, um, you know, we started when my partner and I were really going down the survival skills sort of uh, track and on the mission, trying to find all the people we could to go and study like, uh, you know, bush tucker and tracking and how to make fire and all of these like classic ancestral skills. And then through those communities, we encountered people who were running kids and family camps um, and going to these things and discovering like these huge, like all of these, and it's really exploded in the last few years actually, but when we were first doing it, they were just, they were quite small camps, but like the people were coming with their kids and the kids were maybe 50% of the time kids who have some sort of like learning difficulties or behavioral issues or whatever. And others were just like happy families or whatever kind of families where the parents were like, oh, my kids definitely need this time in nature in a semi-structured, you know, still sort of child directed with a mentoring, mentoring structure. So that they're not being taught, they're being mentored by older people mm -hmm. and in nature. And then parents get a break because the village is looking after the kids for a few hours in the morning and the, you know, they come along and um, watching the transformation that happens in the kids it's just incredible, you know, where they're like, they're running around, they're in nature. They're not, they're not bossing the adults around. Like, so we were doing mentoring on these camps. It's like when you're mentoring out in the bush with these kids, it's like, it's not that you just follow them around and do what they want to do. It's this negotiation. It's like, well, what do you guys feel like doing? And does that sound fun to me? And what do I feel like doing? Does that sound fun to you? And we'll, you know, go around together and maybe it's sitting and having snacks, telling stories, making fires, building shelters, just exploring, you know, making up games, whatever. Um, and, and just realizing that like, oh, okay, this thing of varied age groups in nature with older adults mentoring the kids and then the parents are all in the village together and then we're all interacting together, catching the kids' stories and the adults' stories at the end of the day around the fire, all this stuff and realizing like, oh, my God, this is like, this is what we didn't get. This is like, and like genuinely it's like, okay, of course we all go, oh, if only we could live like this, but even coming together multiple times a year and just the amount of like, like healing and huge amount of grief that comes up and going like, oh, this is how it's meant to be. Like, it's not just us and our children. It's all of the parents together with all of the children multiple age groups the kids are getting different bits of what they need from all of these different adults of different kinds and the mentors doing the mentoring is like wow to be with kids and it's like we're not teaching them we're just being with them and we're just doing all this stuff and it's like so healing for us and then the parents who come and they think they're coming on behalf of their kids and then the parents get this like revelation of like 
support and like being seen and like in the nature and their kids start thriving and they go, Oh, I'm not a bad person. It's like, you know, it's just like, like absolutely incredible stuff. And so for me, it's like this thing of like, Oh, okay. We can't necessarily live in a village. Jeez, it would be amazing. You know, again, we've got to, we've now, especially now that we have a, a baby, it's like realizing, wow, it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be just us, but, um, to have access to communities where on a semi-regular basis we go into that environment. I feel like that's where we're at as a, as a society of like to try and create those environments where it's like for a week at a time, for five days at a time, four times a year, you know, or just even just once or twice a year. But like that feels like, It honestly, it does feel necessary to me for those of us like, and we can't speak for, I don't know where you live or where other people live, but in, in, in modern sort of Australia, most of us don't have access to anything like that. But, but like you say, it's like, that's what our systems are still built for. And this kind of idea that our, our cognitive capacities and our brain development really kind of needs that. You know what I mean? It's really craving that. And like where a lot of us have all of these deep dissatisfaction and like emotional issues because our parents were too busy to like, and it's just not possible for parents to provide all of that for their kids. You know, it's the kids need, we need like all of these aunties and uncles and brothers and sisters and all of that stuff. Mm. Um, and I just, I honestly don't think there's any way around that. I really think we actually have a deep inherent need for that in order to be not stunted in our mm -hmm. development. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, first, this sounds amazing. I feel like I need to like move out there and, uh, mm. and, and get, get a piece of property on the, uh, on the <laughs> land that you're got going on. Yeah. Cause Dude, there'd awesome. be so much of this stuff going on where you live. Like, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I need to look into it. I'm just, I, I can't agree enough that we have this like, nervous system that is built to have deep relationships with ourselves and other people in the natural world. And it's through like billions of years of like tinkering that mm. has developed this, like this, this very complex relationship with all of these things. Mm. And it's almost as like every day there's a, a wall put up to prevent that from happening more and more and more and more and more, mm. right? It's like each new technology is this thing that like creates space from like mm. the, the, the authentic evolutionary relationship from, from occurring, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like, I mean, I notice it. I'm we're right now we're living in this, my, my aunt's house in Florida and there's a beautiful lake and I go and stand out on the dock every morning for a while and just like the wind and the birds mm. Mm. and and sensing the fish moving around me i'm like i can't explain why it matters mm. but like i realize i'm like oh like there's something about these things and this information that like i'm i'm built to kind of absorb mm -hmm. 
and yeah, I, I think that we're, it's almost like, um, you know, Katie Bauman, move your DNA. Mm-hmm. She talks about like, you, you know, we're supposed to be experiencing loads, like our bodies mm-hmm. are supposed to be experiencing loads, but I, I would say that it's like our, our nervous systems are supposed to be experiencing mm-hmm. loads and mm-hmm. we, and we don't let the nervous system experience the loads. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Again, like exactly what you're describing, like that sort of, that sort of feeling like a lot of, you know, countless experiences like that <clears throat> and, and reflecting on them were um, a big part of why I came to the lens that I started calling ancestral movement of going like, oh, like, you know, where do, how does like Vipassana or like some sort of like you know, stillness meditation practice or like these various spiritual systems associated with like the, some of the big world religions, how do they fit in a human 400,000 years ago or a hominid like a million years ago in, in the forest, like, and going like, you know, or like Wim Hof method, like all this sort of stuff. And like, you know, cause I've got a background in evolutionary biology and, in, um, you know, I dabbled in physical anthropology. Um, and then I've got a, a lot of experience in like physiology and neuroscience and stuff, but a deep, deep basis in traditional practices. And just like, you know, so I read, read a lot as well and reading and discovering like that, you know, anatomically modern humans lived through like ice ages that lasted for like 10,000 years. And there's, you know, in some places there's evidence to show that they weren't wearing clothes and just this idea that like, you know, like, okay, like Wim Hof method, the whole point isn't that like Wim Hof can do it. Like Wim, he's a, he's a freak of nature. Um, but he's just like, you know, he's like, I'm just a guy. The whole point isn't that I can do this. The whole point is that this stuff is innate in human beings that mm-hmm. we can warm ourselves up to the point that we can walk around in sub-zero temperatures in our shorts. And it's just fine. You know, but we need to, like you say, we need to expose ourselves. Certain environments will naturally cause these innate abilities to arise. Um, and we have these abilities to stay perfectly still, to completely calm our, our mind and our heart into a state of just pure sensing. You know, we have these abilities to like tune our ears to, to read the environment in different ways. Our, our nose, we have the abilities like, you know, like the, the Pacific navigators to stand on a, on the front of a canoe following a star with our memory while reading like seven different ocean currents simultaneously at once. Like all of these skills are innate in us because of, because of this, this huge rich co-evolution with the rest of the living world, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's sort of like, I really love the idea of going like, yeah, like there's advanced, what we call now advanced yoga practice, but then recognizing that what we now call advanced yoga practice was probably the norm for most humans in certain environments at certain periods of time, just because of the environments they lived in. Mm -hmm. Like, and so, you know, 
a lot of this stuff is just like yeah i don't know i guess it's all just trying to feel at home again isn't it where we're like oh man i just i just feel like like there's all these people who call it nature connection it's like yeah we're we're, we're disconnected society is built around disconnecting us and we just need to put in these little tools to reconnect and one of the favorite tools is doing exactly what you're saying you do every morning is just go to your spot just go to your spot and just just chill and like appreciate you know mm -hmm. and make it a practice like yeah you know. yeah it's funny like um you know because i'm like i'm like quite a uh whatever, like quite a nerd. I love, I love this stuff. And like, you know, I've gone, I've spent like a long time in Asia and I've spent like, you know, all of my adult life and half of my pre-adult life learning and practicing meditation and like, like, you know, coming down and chilling out and like, you know, just appreciating and being quiet and just loving that, loving that quiet, subtle peace and whatever. And um, when we went to like, we've spent my partner and I've spent a bit of time in um, Northeast Arnhem land in the, remote um, indigenous homelands uh, areas in, in Australia, um, up in the Northern Territory. And um, with uh, the, on this one particular Yolngu community um, and hanging out with the men there, they just like, they'll just sit on the ground and their baseline is just chilling. Their baseline isn't conversation. You don't say hello or goodbye. You don't say, you don't arrive and say, hello, you just arrive. You don't, and when someone arrives, you don't stop and look them in the face and be like, hello. You know, when someone arrives, they sit next to you and they'll be, it'll be parallel. You're not looking at each other. There's like, there's this baseline respect for that, that peace that you don't get in and disrupt someone's peace that like you sit next to them and you like Tyson, Yonkapura calls it like you come at it from the side, right? Mm -hmm. um, so very much that and it's so relaxing I just love it love it love it love it love it and um a couple of the older guys um you know kind of took a took a liking my adopted my adopted brother like adopted older brother and stuff took a liking and was like oh you're you're like a little bit yolongo you know a little bit yolongo and I was like <laughs> wow that's so nice and for me I find it so funny that it's like literally 20 30 years of often obsessive intensive meditation practice is enough to make me like a little bit like right. these people just are normally you know just actually just chilled out mm -hmm. and able to just be and enjoy it yeah i found i found that really sort of um illustrative of where we're at as a society <laughs> yeah. yeah i think that i think that's so uh, amazing. I, I, I think about this conversation I had with someone on here, um, Winston Reynolds, mm -hmm. um, and he was talking about how he went and did a workshop with Joseph Bartz. And I think the very first thing he did was like, take him out into the garden or in the woods. And he just said, go, just go be bored mm -hmm. for a while. And it was mm -hmm. like 45 minutes or an hour and just, just go be bored. And I think about this piece a lot, the boredom piece that like, mm. we like kind of, maybe we don't talk about it, but there's like a stigma around boredom as if it's a bad thing. Mm. Mm. But like, it, 
it, it's only boredom now in the way that we exist, right? And then before may, boredom may not have even been a thing. It was just, mm. it was just that, that being. Mm. And boredom is actually a really special place. That's like what leads to daydreaming, right? Mm, totally. Which leads to cre- creativity and, and yeah. innovation and things like that. And yeah. we're just very quick to like distract ourselves mm. when boredom arises, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and I think of like a, a, a teacher I had who was teaching, not, I shouldn't say teaching meditation, but doing some exposure to, and you kept using this, this line of like the mind will play tricks on you. And I think that's like a modern day thing of like mm. looking for the distractions from the boredom when mm. we have it in us to embrace mm. that. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I've been I've been going through an interesting time recently discovering and realizing that like most of my um maybe not most but like a huge number of like my closest friends and associates and often like I feel weird calling them students but people who come to my classes and retreats and events and stuff that like there's a really high proportion of people who are like diagnosed or not but with um ADHD um and like um, realizing that like heat, so much of the stuff we do is like um, is channeling, channeling the um, these these symptoms of that. Where it's like in in modern society, these this is pathologized, but in again out in out on these nature camps and doing like movement practices and when it's all whatever, when it's all set up for us, it's like all of those things, which we, which cause us to be like in standard society to just be like, Oh my God, like, Oh, this is so hard. And oh, I can't like, you know, can't pay attention or can't like whatever deal with this thing. It's like when we're out in the nature and we're, we're walking and we're doing practices and maybe we're like weaving baskets or like doing all these things. It's like, um, so much of that, um, so much of that struggle is is um, is mitigated, but also realizing that it's like, oh, okay, wow, like for like that we live in a society which is almost like with 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 the technology technology that we have access to at the moment, the level of distraction that's not just available to us, but which is really actively like pushed on us and we're totally surrounded with it and like it's all set up to be as addictive as possible and it's like oh my god it's like actually we live in a society which is almost designed to create adhd you know it's it's designed to make us as dissatisfied as possible and as like to really hype up the every part of every addictive part of our personalities and like um And it's, it's getting, you know, I grew up playing computer games and was totally addicted to computer games. And it was like, when I look at the computer games, kids are, kids are on now. And it's like, they've had another 30 years of like very deliberate, extensive designing to make them more addictive, more engaging, more absorbing. And it's like, wow, like, I'm glad that I was, I'm really thankful that I was part of that last generation to grow up without a mobile phone, without the internet, you know, without those things. Cause I feel like for the young kids and teenagers and stuff now, it must just be, 
it must be so hard, man. It must be so, so, so hard. Like their, their brains, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm totally in it. Right. I scroll on my phone. I check this stuff all the time, but at least I had, at least I had that formative period of my life where I was just running around in the bush in New Zealand. And Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I I read once um, this guy who, who was theorizing that, the world was going to become more like um, Brave New World than 1984, and right. and that you know we would basically give up our our rights for entertainment or something like that. And yeah, and that's and and you see it. It's like the phone is like a it's soma, you know, uh-huh. yeah. and uh. and and that's the thing. It's just like, but it's like this like momentary relief, you know, and mm. it makes us. Uh, you know, it kind of like embeds impatience in us because I think it's because, you know, it may, it maybe this is something you thought about, but like we're efficiency machines. We want to be as mm-hmm. energy saving as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's part of like what's in us is to like mm-hmm. keep as much reserved in the tank because like we need to be able to like get back to camp and, mm-hmm. you know, cook the food and everything. So like we, we're, we're, we're predisposed to be, to save energy and be, and be efficient. And like, when we keep being handed these efficient things that make mm. things more efficient, mm. we lean hard into it because like, that's how we want to work. But it's like, mm. we're supposed to, I don't know, the, the, it's, it's supposed to be geared in a different direction. It's and, and, and the, mm. and the, and the payoff that, that Soma feeling is supposed to come from like right. bouts, bouts of creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like we're efficiency, we're, we're wired for efficiency, but we're also wired for seeking novelty, right? And that's where the boredom comes in. It's like, you know, like where that's why we experience boredom is like, it's like whenever we're in any environment that like, you know, as soon as our basic needs are like met to a, a really simple, like, you know, like satisfying enough for the time being, then these like novelty seeking circuits kick in of like, oh, what's going on? Oh, what can I do with this? Or what can I explore here? Or how does that work? Or what else can I do with it? Or what happens when I do this with my body? Or like, what's around the corner there? This exploratory novelty seeking aspect. And then, so then the phone or the internet is like, it's the most efficient way, easiest, like low energy way to get a constant stream of a little bit of novelty. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's enough to satisfy our novelty circuit and it's efficient enough that we don't have to do anything. And so it's just like, oh, a bit of novelty. And it's this constant stream of like, you know, just enough novelty to like, to satisfy us, which is why I think it's so dangerous. Whereas the boredom thing is like, you're in the bush, you're in the forest and you're bored, you know, now what? And that's when like so much, you know, then it has to come out of, out of us or out of our interaction with the, with the, with the actual living world, which is, um, you know, I guess where, where human genius has emerged from. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just, uh, just us, us all talking about the scrolling on the phones and like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a thing. We do that. It's a, it's a funny, weird thing. It's like, um, in some ways too, there's also a genius to it as well, because it's almost like, it's not just playing to like our, like evolutionary desires for things like efficiency and things like novelty, but also like 
how much of our our world and our experience like is in the hands and it's such like this like hand mm. thing and, mm, and totally. the hands and the yeah. hands have played such a big yeah. role so it's it's feeding this thing for the hands yeah. as well yeah fully yeah and the gossip the mm-hmm. gossip fact like oh what are those guys doing oh what's what's Kyle doing oh what is, what is oh what are you eating today like yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it, it, it's a it's tragic like I said I mean it, it keeps us like in I, like you know we talk I was saying this this thing about relationships with ourselves whether it's like through physical practice or stillness practice or, or whatever that is you know imagination things but then there's also the relationship with other people and I think that you know we really satisfy that first thing the second one I think we often fake it like even right now it's unfortunate this is not the most genuine, real human interaction, you know, the, we're, mm-hmm. even for us to have like the nonverbal communication is very challenging. Um, yeah, totally. And then we have virtually like no relationship with nature. And then I, sometimes I think to myself that even when we think we do, it's almost just because we think we're doing things in nature, but we're actually not having our true relationship with it. Like I think of um, Mm. uh, the book braiding sweetgrass and the relationship that we're, Mm -hmm. that, that we are supposed to have, or I forget what the tribe was, the tribe had with that plant that like the plant Mm. flourished more Mm. when they went Mm. and chopped parts of it down as opposed to the sweet grass that was completely untouched. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes wonder, I'm like, well, how many of these different relationships are we missing out on and, and Mm. is nature missing out on, you Mm. know? Yeah, totally. Like it's, you know, as a, as a lifelong nature lover, like, you know, like growing up in, um, running around in the forest in New Zealand and then moving to Australia and running around in the forest in Australia and, you know, like all of the, all of the places I've been lucky enough. I've lived in some huge cities as well, but like spending a lot of my best times in, in forests um, and jungles and stuff. Um, And like, you know, doing movement stuff and, and meditating and, and whatnot. And like, yeah, it's like, you know, whatever, climbing, climbing waterfalls and walking through the forest and like sitting perfectly still, like under a little leaf shelter in the rain and like all of these experiences, which have made me, made me who I am. But then in the last decade, getting more into like actually foraging, foraging for edible or medicinal plants or, like learning to make fire with different sorts of like fire by friction with different sorts of wood or learning to weave and, you know, these sorts of things. And, um, and, you know, like I'm still very much a dabbler in these things, you know, it's been, it's been a close to a decade now that we've been doing this stuff, but it's like, um, you know, it's slow going but like this, like engaging what I've really found that I love about it is that like walking through, walking through the environment now, it's not, 
it really helps to make the environment not be scenery. The environment is now like a world of like potential resources which are drawing me in to interact, like maybe to dig and find the find the edible tubers or, you know, to trace trace these relationships which are now like the utilitarian aspect. That it's not it's not a like, oh, let's chop this forest down and, and build a village kind of thing or whatever, but it's this sense of like like my 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 senses pick things up in the environment in a totally different way because now they're things that I can physically like interact with and strip the bark off and make rope or, you know, like um, those ones are good for, for hand drill. Those ones are good for bow drill. Like those ones are good for like the bark. The bark can be good for making a root or particularly things that are edible or whatever. Um, and that feeling is like, um, so that, that for me has now like that feeling is now far more important to me than this hypothetical situation of surviving in the wilderness in a survival situation, or even the, like the more romantic picture, which I of course had in the initial few years of like, right, we got to go out we've got to go out and do like these intense survival experiences. Um, I still really like that aspect of it, but just that sense of growing actual relationships with the plants and the, the environments and the, you know, how the plants go in a particular kind of soil in a particular kind of microclimate and like all of that sort of stuff. And it's not just an intellectual thing. It's a, like a thing that involves me, like my taste and my sense and all of, all of that stuff. So that, that, growing um growing relationship is the thing I really like and I've noticed that that's I feel like that's why a lot of my friends who teach those sort of things they no longer call their schools survival skills they now call it nature connection you know um yeah. for that reason it's like yeah like surviving learning to survive is like okay cool that's that's a really cool fun inspiring thing to do but like it's not it's probably never going to happen you know what I mean? You're never going to need, it's like very unlikely that you'll need that. Maybe sure. Like, you know, the end times are coming and all that, like no, no doubt, but there's a good chance that we won't like be pushed into a survival situation in the next year or two. Yeah. Um, but the nature connection aspect is like so enriching for every single day of, of my life, of, of people's lives. Yeah. Do you, do you hunt as well? Um, I have just a little bit, you know, that's another one that's sort of on the list of going further, further into, um, like I have friends who hunt, um, and you know, like there's, there's hunting, there's hunting around here. Like we have a lot of feral goats and feral pigs and those are the main things that people hunt. Um, when we're in Arnhem land, um, with the Yolngu mob, like we, we hunt, um, every couple of days, um, it's like making spears for, for fish. Um, and then, I mean, those guys will peg a spear at a wallaby or something if they see one, but also they'll just like, they'll definitely use the, use the rifle, um, if they can and hunt mm -hmm. buffalo and, and kangaroo and whatever, anything that moves really well, 
outside of outside of the sort of cultural taboos on certain different you know you know the whole thing of like different people depending on their lineage and whatever they will be like it's their job to look after a certain kind of animal and so they won't eat that animal but they'll tell other people when they can eat it and that sort of thing so there's all that stuff going on but they're they're mad hunters um so yeah we've done a bit of hunting with them which is um which is really really amazing but um it's not a regular part of my life no yeah i'm 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 fascinated by hunting for various reasons obviously there's like the ethical things of like if i'm going to eat meat I should probably take some responsibility for what that really means. Um, And then I've thought more and more about like, you know, things like the like cultural, like death phobia. And, you know, not only do we, you know, oftentimes like not in most places, not have like a real relationship Mm. with the death of like people in our communities, but like Mm. how, how could we possibly understand what these things mean when we don't even have like a relationship with death, with like the food we eat. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've only I've butchered a couple of chickens in my life, you know, like killed the rooster and butchered it and like, and being like really profoundly moved by the experience you know what i mean where it's like i've gone felt like i've gone pale and like haven't wanted to be touched for an hour or two afterwards and you know um like gone into a kind of minor shock you know it's like oh, i just just killed that little creature and you know like that's um i've, I've i get it much less with fish but like with the killing of a, a mammal um it's been, you know, like, um, I still find it really intense. Um, but really like, yeah, it feels really important to me because I eat meat, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, I, and like, I mean, just the act of hunting, the actual behavior of moving through the bush, stalking, tracking and stalking and again being quiet communicating with with gesture rather than words like um camouflaging scent like you know like the 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 movement patterns that you have to use when you're when you're talking like that stuff like i i love love that and definitely want to do like much more like you know i really i really aspire to integrating it as like a whatever it might be a monthly activity and have a big chest freezer. And, you know, um, I have a lot of friends well, several friends who are like hide tanning, um, like geeks, um, you know, and like just, I just, yeah, I, I, I have huge respect for, for those activities. Um, and like, they, they really inspire me for sure. So, you know, um, definitely, definitely want to do more just for my education. And again, it's like, yeah, now I've got a, now I've got a, a child in my life. And so it's this cool process of like, oh, cool. Like, what do we, what do I feel like is important to expose this mm. brand new human to and give some of the, 
some of the opportunities that I didn't get as a kid. And, you know, I want him to think that I'm really cool as well. Right. So it's like, what, what kind of earthy awesome stuff can we do with, with the little one that, you know, makes him think that we're like totally awesome and do the, do the best, do the best stuff in the best, most adventurous places. That's always the fear, right? That like, you're not going to be cool to your kid. Yeah. Or like, you know, it's like back to the previous thing. It's like, Oh, like, you know, do I really want my, like, it's like, Oh, I can have all these great ideas, but like if day to day, the main thing he sees me doing is like working on my computer and like checking my phone and like, you know, I even get, I get worried that I read books too much in front of him because it's like, he'll get up in the morning and we'll get up and he'll like he'll sometimes grab a book and like want want to sit and look at the stories and it's like no but like yeah damn i'm telling him i'm teaching him the wrong things he thinks that books are more interesting than just looking at the forest you know so it's like no 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 let's not read our books let's look at the forest and going you know it's like actually a genuine realization of this cliche that like yeah the book is the equivalent of the mobile phone from a couple of hundred years ago it's like oh it's totally it's totally putting a barrier between me and the pure sensory engagement with the natural world. And that's what I'm teaching my son when I, when I'm constantly reading my books. Um, so I got to, I got to, I got to regulate, regulate the amount of time that I'm doing on these, these activities and spend more time just walking and looking at the forest and looking at the birds and all that. Yeah. What's this like, I mean, and I have no answer for this, but I just know that like, at least in the U S and like our, our society, there's this high value placed on knowledge mm. and what seems like very little value placed on intelligence. Mm. And I, I, I refer to intelligence, like feeding the innate thing that's in mm-hmm. us. Um, and that's, I, I mean, that must be a delicate balance as like a, as a parent being like, okay, well, what is that kind of teeter totter between yeah. like the knowledge and intelligence thing? Cause I mean, I think a lot of what we're talking about is like intelligence mm. and intelligence has gotten us really far. I mean, we got it. We, we even got really far. I mean, you know, way better than I do, but like without even being able to use words and write words and have languages, mm. like we could communicate totally. plenty of other yeah. ways, you yeah. know, and that was just kind yeah. of through our physicality and our, yeah, you know, making, yeah. making sounds and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, when I hear you talk about, you know, the books and exposure to books, it's like, yeah, well, I struggle with that too. Like, well, what is that? You know, how, Yeah. because nothing beats being there and feeling it. Mm. Yeah, fully. And like, you know, like I'm a, like I've, I've got a, whatever you want to call it, like a, a left hemisphere that won't shut up like everyone else, but um, mm. super, super verbal. And like, I was like, both of my parents had academic backgrounds. And so like, my dad taught me to read like really early. Um, and so I could like, I could read like way above my like expected level from a super early age. And so I was extremely verbal. Um, but also like have my whole life had this natural predisposition towards like kind of sort of like trance states, like just like, dropping and staring into space and like wide angle vision and like um, going and maybe going on journeys in my imagination or maybe just like sort of journeying into the sensory world. Um, 
which people like it used to bother people that I would be constantly dropping into those spaces, staring out the window as a kid. But um, so with, with my little boy um, ocean now, like what I've noticed is that like, and I never would have known that this would be the case, but what I've noticed is that I'm really not trying to push verbal like I'm not pushing him to talk. I'm not like, I'm not going out of my way to teach him the names of things. Mm. Um, and I'm much more like I mimic his language more than, you know, like I don't rather than trying to teach him my language, I, I speak, I speak his language with him, like babbles and gurgles and sounds. And I'm feeling this really strong prioritizing in my being of like, Oh, cool. Like I want to be with you in, the nonverbal space and just be looking and sensing and moving and feeling. And like, it's really cool. Like he's, he only has a couple of sort of word like sounds, but he's really into copying the sounds of creatures or sounds of the wind or sounds of cars and all that sort of thing. And I feel like I'm, I'm really encouraging that aspect of like mimicry and, and like, noticing and sounds rather than the like because it feels like verbal verbal ability is almost like a status system of like oh you're a good parent your child knows lots of words um and i'm like almost like a reaction against that like i have full confidence that he's going to learn all the words he's going to speak all the language um because that's what our society is based on whereas this non-verbal being sensing feeling mimicking feeling into and not knowing the names. Oh my God, what a gift to not know the names. Mm-hmm. You know, like I really want to like nurture that. Um, which I wouldn't have, yeah, like I said, I wouldn't have known that that was going to happen, but that's totally what's happening. Um, and it's, it's really, it's really cool. Noticing like what's, what's lacking and what we can, what we can provide rather than, diving headlong into the into the left hemisphere dominance you know sorry to use that terminology but it is an interesting interesting little concept Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's to me it's one of the the tragedies i guess is this like you know we lean so hard into like words but words Mm. seem to only be able to capture a fraction of like the complexities of like our relationships and existence and everything. Right. That's why I always say, I'm like, well, that's why if we could, if we could capture it all in words, there'd be like no art. Right. Mm. Mm, Totally. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that's why, and, and, and it's, I mean, that's, you know, like to, to bring it to some of the stuff that you present in ancestral movement. I mean, that's like, it's, it's almost like the brilliance to me of like, these older cultures is that it's almost like they respected the complexity so much that they were just like, well, we're just going to tell stories. Mm. Like storytelling is like how, how, how we can navigate. Like we know it's so complex, mm. you know, mm. and that it's like, we'll, we'll, we'll use storytelling to, to capture some of this. Yeah. Well, you know, I love that. I love this concept that like what, what was like, there's storytelling, but again, depending on who you're talking to, there might be an assumption that by storytelling, you mean reciting a string of words. Whereas 
the storytelling, the human storytelling tradition, I'm fully convinced is um is far older than verbal language. Like that it's it's like comes from the like what what some of the authors I like call the mimetic, the mimetic realm, which is like gesture, tone of voice, sound, body shape, you know, like like telling the stories with our bodies and our voices. Um, and then linked with that is then like costumes and masks and rattles and, you know, that, that tradition um, in that whole, you know, the stuff that's coming out around the cave art that it's like, it's meant to be viewed by torchlight and then viewed by, by, by fire, like a handheld flame. And those cave arts are actually animated that they're animated pictures to be viewed by flame. And so it's like the human storytelling tradition is the main way that we're communicating all the time, the most important information in our bodies and our gestures and our tone of voice and our breathing patterns and our facial expressions and, you know, all of that. And that's the real, like, that's the tradition, which like, like physical theater, you know, Mm-hmm. Going like, oh, that that's actually the root of our genius is phys- physical theatre, like copying the shapes and sounds and movements of literally everything in our environment. And then this cool little factoid coming out of the neuroscience is that when you copy something, when you copy something, then when you're exposed to that thing or anything like it in the environment, you feel it more, you feel it more strongly, you notice it more strongly. Like if you copy the, the shapes of the trees moving in the wind, then as you walk through the forest and the wind blows and those trees move in the wind, you get more of that feeling in your body of being like the trees. Mm. If you copy the if you copy the, the walking pattern of the lizard, then when you see the lizard moving or you see the tracks of the lizard moving, you get a feeling in your body more, you're more likely to get a stronger feeling in your body of what it's like to be that lizard. (laughs) That This is like this innate technology built into the human nervous system because of our history as animal trackers, plant trackers, weather trackers, and story, like physical storytellers of everything in the environment. You know, you've been around the hill, you found a whole bunch of animals there in a, in a waterhole. You don't have verbal language. You've got to come back and tell people. Um, and then the act of telling people tunes your nervous system. You know what I mean? You've made those shapes. You've made those sounds. And so now your nervous system is more closely attuned to those shapes and those sounds. Mm-hmm. And also the listeners, They've, they've seen the shapes and the sounds that you've been saying. So their nervous systems are now more attuned to those shapes and sounds. And it's this feedback loop between us and the environment, which is embedded in physical mimicry. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's all, it also sounds like it's like there's some, I, I, as you were talking about, it, I kept hearing like empathy in my mind as well. Mm, totally. That it creates this like, yeah. uh, this relationship with the nature, like, uh, you know, yeah. again, one of the limitations of our language is, is is the structure and what yeah. we call things. And I think about, again, like some indigenous cultures that like personify animals and, and plants and, and mm. the rocks and everything. And there's a, there's a certain kind of connection that comes to something 
when you do that. So I, I, I was thinking about that a little bit as you were talking about like the yeah. mimicking them as well. And then mm. that creating some sort of relationship. Totally. Yeah. It's funny. I've noticed I do this thing where it's like, when things start becoming buzzwords, I stop using those buzzwords. Mm-hmm. And like, if we'd had this conversation five years ago or 10 years ago, I would have been like using the words empathy and like mirror neurons and like, like nervous system regulation. And like, I'd be like neuroplasticity and like I'd be using all these, all these terms, which are like quite accurate and great, but like now they're starting to get used too much and I'm starting to use them less. Yeah. Um, which is like, I, I, I probably, I don't know. It probably isn't, isn't necessarily helping um, with my communication stuff, but there's this whole, <laughs> there's this whole field of the neuroscience of empathy, mm-hmm. um, which is like, you know, we can do, and I've done in the past, we can do like whole two hour, like talks on this, of like all this stuff where it's like, yeah, like, you know, the, this attuning of the nervous system to the world happens largely through mimicry through nonverbal communication through shared attention you know through in our pre-verbal stage as little children we're watching what the adults and stuff around us are doing with their bodies we're watching where they're directing their eyes we're watching the shapes they're making their breathing patterns their tone of voice their changes in complexion all of this nonverbal stuff and that's how we attune to the world and we attune by by mimicking so we, when we're making the sounds of the birds, we're feeling what it feels like to make that sound. You know, when we, when we copy the shapes and movements of an adult, when we're a little child, we're copying how it feels to be doing that. When they go like, oh, blah, 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 bloody blah, blah, blah. Then we, the little child goes, oh, bloody blah, blah, blah. You know, we try on, we try on the words and the phrases to see how they feel. And we build our personality through that. But that's how we, we tune into the world. And then there's all this stuff showing that like the more we feel our own bodies, the more empathy we feel for everyone and everything. Wow. That the basic body sense, feeling your heartbeat, feeling your breath, feeling your body, feeling blood pulsing, feeling changes in blood pressure, changes in complexion, that the feeling of the body itself is the number one thing that increases empathy not sympathy, not what, not, but empathy increases our feeling of everything else. So anything that happens in the environment, you feel something in your body. You see someone's face, you feel something in your body. You hear someone say a word, you feel something in your body. So the body sense is the number one thing for empathy. And then the other thing which massively increases empathy is mirroring, (laughs) copying the shapes, copying the sounds, moving our tone of voice closer to the tone of voice of, the person we're talking to. So this mirroring process is like, is the key. And then in the neuroscience of empathy research, and I've talked to some like um, really amazing academic friends of mine um, about this idea. If I was ever to be an absolutely insane person and go back and do a PhD, this would be one of my topics because they haven't researched in the neuroscience, the, mirroring of the shapes and movements and sounds and gestures of animals increasing the like so-called mirror neuron response to those animals. But the concept, the concept definitely maps out is that like you copy the movements of a ballet dancer. And then when you see a ballet performance, the response in your brain 
giving you a bodily feeling as if you're doing those movements is far stronger than if you've never done any ballet. You following? Yeah. You, you copy whatever specific, it's not just your body sense generally. So if you have a greater body sense generally, you'll experience a general level of more empathy for everything. But mm. there's, this, there's this point of that, like you copy the specific movements of your sport. And then even if you haven't played that sport for 20 years, you're watching a performance of your sport and you'll feel in your body, like you're running, you're doing the plays, you're catching the ball, you're doing those things. And someone who's never played that sport won't have those feelings in the same mm. way. Mm. But then the thing, the cool thing with empathy is that where our species are so hyper empathic, hyper empathic that we literally experience bodily empathy for rocks, for water, for trees, for worms, for insects, for cartoon characters, for, you know, like like cartoon mountains with a face on them going blah, 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 blah. We experience a physical empathy for them. Whether we're aware that we're feeling it in our body or not, we're feeling it in our body what it's like to be the mountain, what it's yeah. like to be the cloud rolling over the mountain, what it's like to be the sky, you know, and that that can be developed even stronger by actually taking on the shapes and movements and sounds of those things in the environment. And that's the root of our storytelling. Mm -hmm. So that's this feedback loop. That's like, that's the thing I really is like, there's all the movement stuff and I love all the movement stuff, but getting into that, this ancient, ancient human technology of empathy and storytelling and embodied interaction with the landscape and with mm. each other. That's the thing that I find like so, so, so beautiful and so powerful. Um, the first thing I want to ask, are there any authors you recommend who are writing about any of these types of things? Um, or, do, or, or do I have to wait for your book? So, I mean, no, no, you know, <laughs> like I'll get around to the book eventually, but like, um, on the sort of basic neuroscience level, um, like there's people like Dan Siegel. I don't know if you've come across Dan Siegel. He does great. He does great work on the basic neuroscience of, um, brains in relationship with each other like mm. he's got one one of his older books called the developing mind which is just all about that how it's like human minds develop through relationship with other minds there's no such thing like a human mind trying to grow up on its own without other minds would would not it doesn't work um dan siegel stuff's really good uh an excellent book by a guy called merlin donald called a mind so rare that has an excellent, he's got an excellent framework of how the human mind is built on the, what he calls episodic consciousness and then mimetic consciousness and then mythic consciousness and so on. And he's got this little structure, which he goes deep into the, mim the mimetic side of our personalities, which is great. Um, and then in terms of like that stuff applied to the more than human world, um, there's that book, The Lost Science and Art of Tracking, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. um, have you come across this book? I'm familiar. That's I have it like I think I have it in my Amazon cart, but I I haven't I have not read that one. Yeah. So that's got some great stuff about like how the Kalahari trackers when they describe their experiences as tracking, they are literally describing exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That they do so much tracking and then they do the movements of all the creatures and things in their environment. Like they have a, 
really profound art of physical storytelling in which it's not about words, it's about gesture and shape and body movement. Um, and then they, you know, they describe things in terms of like um, when you see the tracks, you become the animal and you can feel what the animal was doing and how it felt when it made those tracks. Mm. Um, and that that comes from not just the looking of the tracks, but that comes from the like, like diving into the body of the animal mm-hmm. with your, you know, with your imagination, essentially with your, with your felt sense. Um, what would be some other ones, you know, like it's been a while since I read it, but the David Abram, the spell of the sensuous, I felt like went into a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and his other book becoming animal. Um, yeah, it's kind of these different fields. It's like, there's the neuroscience, the mirror neurons aspect, which is, you know, constantly getting updated and then the empathy and the, and the, 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 the more than human world. So for me, yeah, it's really, I've been synthesizing a lot of these things. Um, a mm-hmm. lot of the neuroscience people don't go in, don't go so much into the, um, like they're more interested in therapy, mm-hmm. less interested in, um, in nature connection apparently, but. Do you, do you think then that it's that what you're describing is part of the evolutionary purpose of our potential for movement complexity. Exactly. Exactly. That's why, in my opinion, that is the reason why we have this freakish ability to do arbitrary, like arbitrary movements, make shapes with our body. Like there's no, you know what I mean? No other creature, no other creature does that stuff like to make, like to contort, contort our body into all these ways. In my opinion, it is hundred percent because of our history of physical storytelling. Mm-hmm. And that's why we've developed it to such a remarkable, remarkable degree. Yeah. Wow. I'm a, uh... And I rate that as being a fundamental human movement skill, which we should practice right up there with squats or walking. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, um, I mean, you're also kind of captured in, in kind of recommending these certain books. Also the, the often lack of, collaboration and communication between different fields and a lot of mm. the things that kind of get lost in between the, tr- the cracks when, mm. when that doesn't happen, when there's not this relationship between like mm. whatever the philosophy department and like the neuroscience department or like the, the yeah. theater department and, you know, the biology department. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The theater department and the biology department, that's a, such a great collaboration. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I mean, I, I, you know, I, I studied theater and, and it's so funny. I, I, I've talked about this, how like things almost come full circle, right. Where Mm -hmm. you don't even realize that often the thing that like was the richest thing was the thing that you, you hit earliest. And then you had to almost kind of go through some other journey to return back to where you started. Yeah. And you were talking about nonverbal communication and in theater, you know, I was really attracted to like physical theater and vaudeville and, and, really great teacher and we would do so many of the things that you and I are kind of talking about without actually directly talking about it Mm -hmm. 
in a movement education context mm. and whatever it was he was doing, I was so drawn to, mm. and I didn't know what it was. I was like, this, this guy is just crazy. Um, but I'm going to ditch other classes to go take his class. Mm-hmm. And I've almost realized that I've like come full circle and all of a sudden I'm at sometimes making groups of people just speak to each other in gibberish. Mm. Right. But you think of like non, I was, you know, when you're talking about nonverbal communication and our capacity to communicate things to one another mm. without words and just mm. by tones and things like that. And then thinking of, of empathy, you know, it's almost like people start to, to become invested in what someone is trying to communicate mm-hmm. when they can't say it outright, mm. right? They reach to them a little bit and they're mm. like, let me, uh, oh, do you mean, and they're like, mm. you know, and they're, and then all the physicality and there's like a, this beautiful dance that starts to happen. And, yeah, and, you know, like I said, it's like, there's, there's like a magic you sense oftentimes at the beginning of a road and then suddenly realize like, oh, I've two decades later, I'm actually at the the start of that same road again. Yeah. 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 I find myself wishing like wistfully, reasonably often I'm like, oh, I wish I'd, I wish I'd just done a theater degree or like, I wish I'd just gone to dance school, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm super. Uh, I don't know. I'm, 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 I feel like uh, when, when Australia will will allow it, I've, I've got to make a, a trip out there because, I'm, I'm super into. Um, I don't know everything that you're thinking about. I, 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 I really appreciate the, the, the investment you're putting into it, time wise, and the, and the, the generosity you have with. Uh, with the things you're thinking about and, and, mm. and what, and you know, what you're putting out there. Mm. Thanks man. Yeah. Come out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. definitely. If people, yeah. if people want to connect with you is what are, what are, what are the ways that you are, are available? Um, you know, just, just the usual it's just email, Facebook, like, I have an Instagram account, which I post on very rarely. Um, yeah, my email address is just, it's just my name, like simon.tucker at Gmail. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm still on the Facebook, um, mostly because I don't have the energy for like multiple social media platforms. So I'm still just on the, on the most popular one. Um, yeah. And like, you know, anyone who's in Australia can come visit and we run camps a few times a year and everything's slowed down because of, um, because of COVID and the bushfires and, and baby and stuff. But like I run a bunch of classes every week and, you know, some of, well, I've got my own way of teaching things, but in like a bunch of like traditional Chinese Dallas practices and the ancestral movement, animal body stuff and some old school Kapura Nguala i'm teaching again once a week which is so good and yeah jiu-jitsu of course you know you've got to got to have a bit of jiu-jitsu in there these days mm-hmm. um yeah so you know people can come visit anytime it's a good it's a good place to be if you're in australia um 
yeah and like yeah i love it like if people contact me on the on the internet again like i'm i sometimes struggle to keep up with communication but i do always really love love it when someone from the other side of the world's like oh my god this is all the stuff i've been thinking of as well and like i never never find anyone in my immediate circle who's up for talking about it so i like i, I like that feeling of being like yeah <laughs> people we're out, we're out there we're out there there's a lot of us you know we just we're often the the one freak in our close circle of friends but like yeah yeah we need to we need to develop like a secret handshake or something yeah yeah, yeah totally yeah yeah or like some sort of like gesture so like people like people who are in know yeah um yeah I, but i i totally see it now why like soichi and and i i mean I have to say it's like over a half a dozen people were like, Oh, you've got to talk to Simon. I feel like, yeah, yeah, you, you need to get, you need to get him. So I'm happy. I, 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 I stayed um, vigilant and, and, yeah. and kept messaging. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks man. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're ever like, I'm not sure, like I, I don't have, I don't have much time to listen to, to podcasts these days. So I haven't, um, I haven't heard many of your, um, your other interviews, but um, you know, there's always, like we can we can talk about movement stuff like <laughs> you know if if you like like another time like um it's like i i people when people say like oh you're a movement guy i'm often like ah oh, like not really like movements are part of it but then like um you know like there's um there's a whole heap of like i love i love i do love having those movement conversations as well with with other people about how we train and what we do and, you know, how to, how to go about it. Like the, the philosophical side and the, 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 the imaginative side is like probably on, you know, in a, in a verbal conversation, I guess that's probably something that I, I, I really like getting into, but, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of good stuff to be talked about given the opportunity. So yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to chat more if we get the chance. Hey man, I am, uh, I'm open to it. My, my dream is, like I said, to, to travel a bit and actually get to uh, even interview people in person. So mm. like I said, if uh, you know, if the world allows it, I'm going to, I'm going to find my way there. Cause I, you know, I would love to visit you and Soichi and I got to talk to Emma over at um, Aspen coaching and uh, yeah. Just, Where's that? Uh, I don't know exactly. I guess um, <laughs> I realize I, I, yeah, yeah. I just don't know Australia because I, you know, yeah. I interviewed someone who was 12 hours ahead and yeah. then, you know, I, that's what I assumed you were. And then I guess you're like 15 or 14 hours. So. Yeah. I think we have five time zones. It's maybe not as bad as the U S but yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm not sure, but yeah, I just, I realized there's a lot of people out there that are, are, are thinking about things that I really resonate with. And, you know, to mm. some degree, I would almost say like kindred spirits. Mm. So it's like, it's one of those places where I, I feel like I want to spend some time and, and, and yeah, if that's, if that happens, I'm going to bring some real microphones and we'll get nice. to do it in real life so that we can, uh, you know, see the eyebrows yeah. move and everything at the yeah, same yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. And sit in the forest somewhere and yeah, that'd uh -huh. be nice. But yeah. these are the kind of conversations I love. Yeah. I mean, you know, you having not listened to, to any, I mean, I don't think I never plan anything. I'm, I'm a big fan of like free play and improvisation. So yeah, I kind of tell people if they ask, I'm like, yeah, I just, I just, I just want to see where it goes. And mm. these are my favorite kinds. Cause I, you know, I, 
I like to dig into this type of stuff. Mm. Yeah, cool, man. Yeah. Yo, uh, I can't thank you enough. This was wonderful. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, man. We'll, we'll stay in touch and um, yeah, I'll keep you updated on the travel plans. And then, you awesome. know, when things are, uh, open up as well, you should obviously uh, come and spend more some time, not just in an airport or in Hawaii. Like, uh, uh-huh. you, know, you know, we'll get you to some other places too. North America, crack that one open, fire out. Yeah, man. Yeah, we'll get some, we'll get some <laughs> yeah. like workshops going. Maybe we can collaborate. Yeah, it'd be so fun. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, right, I look man. forward to it, man. Have a great day. Thanks, dude. See ya. See you next time.